Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road, where we're looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And I want to remind you of something that I like to say all the time. Gospel stories are not newspaper reporting, but rather they are artful retellings of something, and they're full of sequence and details to point us to a deeper meaning. So the story that we're about to read is the last miracle recorded in Mark. This is very important, which means that a chapter of Jesus' life is now ended and another is about to open. I've got a good analogy. You know, here in my church, worship happens in really two parts, or the Sunday morning, I should say, happens in two parts. You've got the thinking part, and then you've got the heart part, or the thinking part and the worship part. You come to church and you think about Jesus, you read scripture, you hear a sermon, say your prayers, say what you believe, but then there comes a break in the service and you move to to an attempt to have union with our creator, an experience of the holy. This is something that's happening here in the gospel story. We've got now a chapter that's closing on the earthly uh, teaching of Jesus, the earthly preaching of Jesus, the earthly miracles of Jesus, and now we're moving into a showdown that he promised would happen, something cosmic will happen for him and for us, a saving of the world. So we're moving from one meaning of the story uh, to the next. And so I want to read this very, very important and interesting miracle. Uh, I want to see if we can find some new things in a new way. It's really one of the more interesting stories in the gospel anyway. So let's read The Healing of Blind Bartimaeus. It's Mark chapter 10, beginning with the 46th verse, just a few verses. And this is that last miracle chapter. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Well, right away, a detail leaps off the page. Another way I like to describe Mark is to to describe it like a serial novel. It Things happen fast. The words are few. Remember what we know about the Gospels. We call the first three the synoptic Gospels because they're told with the same shape or the same eye, and then both Matthew and Luke have 90% of Mark within them. So when details happen in Mark's Gospel, pay attention. Every word matters. And we're told in verse 50 that he threw off his cloak and sprang up to come to Jesus. He threw off his cloak and sprang up to come to Jesus. Very, very important detail here. Okay, two layers of meaning. First of all, blind people had no means to support themselves except for begging, and a coat would be his entire world. I've seen something like this here at our church. The last few Christmases, our um, our city leaders have asked St. Luke's to lead the charge in collecting tube socks for homeless people in our city. Uh, at first, I thought, well, that's that's kind of neat because tube socks fit everybody, and that's a good long sock, and it's warm. But that's really only the beginning. Tube socks are important 
for the homeless because you can carry things in a tube sock. You can put your toiletries in a tube sock. You can carry food in a tube sock. A tube sock can also be a pair of gloves. So for those of us who are blessed with many, many, many items and articles of clothing, a tube sock can be a whole world for a homeless person, especially when it's cold. Well, the same thing happens with a coat for blind Bartimaeus. I mean, it would be his protection from the elements, of course. It would keep you keep you warm on cold nights. It would keep the sun off of you during the day. And then it would be something to, to collect your coins in. But this, too, this story is a call story. This is a call story. And I want to remind you that we lose the punch of these stories when we have to chop them up into little bitty snapshots. But remember, just a few verses before, we had a rich man who declined to be a disciple of Jesus because he couldn't leave everything to follow him. Remember, for blind Bartimaeus, this coat is no less his treasure. It's everything. And so he leaves it behind to become a disciple of the Lord. Well, that's just one detail. Let's keep going. We're told that this story happens in Jericho. Jericho. And I don't think there's any mistake that it happens. This last miracle chapter, this miracle statement, if you will, from Jesus happens in Jericho. Talk about Jericho for a second. Jericho is claimed to be the oldest city in the world with 20 successive settlements dating back to 11,000 years ago, which is crazy, right? Um, It also sits in the wilderness. It's an oasis in the wilderness. And Mark's gospel tells, tells us, doesn't tell us a lot, but tells us that after Jesus' baptism, he goes off into the wilderness for a period of prayer. Uh, We know from the other Gospels that this is the temptations from the devil uh, right after his baptism, but Mark just says he goes into the wilderness, which means that he goes off near Jericho. I mean, Jericho sits out in this place of Jesus' temptation because I believe Jericho is important symbolically to Jesus. Jericho can be described as the scene of the original crime. If it's the oldest in a continually inhabited city on planet Earth, that means that it was around when things got bad. If you've listened to earlier podcasts of mine on the book of Genesis, I'm trying to make the case that Genesis 1 through 11 is a poetic rendering of our descent from a garden and a better form of human existence to a city. Genesis 1 and 2 are a garden where we have everything we need. By the time you get to Genesis 11, they're building a tower and they're calling it Babel. And a city might seem like an upgrade at first, but it's not. I mean, in the garden, which represents a hunter-gatherer existence for many, 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 many millennia, people lived in family groups and they ate local seasonal food and they had a varied diet and they had equal value within the tribe. With the domestication of wheat and the agrarian revolution of some 10,000 years ago, which is the date of Jericho, people just stayed put. There was no more varied diet. There was there, Someone got to be the king, but most everybody had to be the slave to pick the wheat or an army to guard the wheat or build a wall to protect the wheat. It was a long grinding existence, a long work day. And now you need a rain god to pray to so you don't die because you're not following the weather anymore. You stay and put in your waiting on the whims of some golden calf to make sure that you get the water so that you can live. It's a nightmare world that is an opposite. It's an interesting opposite to the ethics that we've just covered in the last three podcasts, which are the ethics of Jesus in Mark chapter 10. Uh, in, In the city now, people are discarded and they're not important. In the city, money is power. In the city, status is set so that Jesus comes and turns all that on its head. I also think it's fascinating that many scholars believe that Mark's gospel was actually written in the city of Rome and during the reign of Nero. So Mark would have known this nightmare world 
even as he thrilled to the stories of Jesus and a new kingdom of God. And now, if you think of Genesis 1 through 11 in this way, and think of Jericho as the scene of an original crime, now the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 makes sense. I like to say Genesis chapter 12 is the beginning of our story. 1 through 11 is prehistory. It sets up the problem. But in Genesis 12, Abraham is called to leave a city and be different in the way the Bible asks us to be different. And after the baptism, Jesus is in this wilderness in the shadow of Jericho. And Luke's gospel remembers three temptations, three basic human desires. It's found in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, but it goes like this. The devil comes after Jesus and says, turn these stones into bread, the basic desire to satisfy our hunger. Then the devil comes to Jesus and says, "Uh, fall down at my feet and all the kingdoms of the world I'll give you. That's a basic human desire for power. Then the devil comes after Jesus and says, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple and his angels will bear you up. And that's our basic desire for control or for certitude, hunger, power, control. These are all common human desires to fill our appetites that will never be satisfied. So in the shadow of Jericho, the scene of the original crime, Jesus shows us a new way of being human, dependent upon God alone. And that means being different and the here and the now and not a slave to our own appetites. I have my own story. I caught a glimpse of this new world when I was a very young man and dreaming of becoming a preacher, I wasn't anywhere near that, that goal being reached. But I did some volunteer work at a remarkable ministry called Father Purcell's Home for Exceptional Children in Montgomery. And it's run by an order of nuns who take care of these children who are so wounded by physical disability and cognitive uh, impairment that they cannot go out into the world. They never go outside. They never play. And yet these remarkable Christian people care for them and love them. And I found myself volunteering to read stories to a little boy that, that never could never respond. He could never tell me, never knew that I was in the room. I didn't know what to do for him. I, I wanted to buy something for him. I, a toy would do no good. He couldn't play with it. So I went to one of the nuns and I said, I'd like to buy him a shirt. I'd like to buy him a, a knit shirt to wear. Uh, it was the only thing I could think of. I was working in a clothing store in those days and We had some children's sizes, and the nun was fierce with me, and it surprised me at first, but then I got it. She said, it must be the best if you buy him something. I I didn't understand what she meant. She said, it must be the best. You must not buy him a dollar store shirt. You must buy him the finest that you can afford. You You must take care of him. You must honor his life with the best, and I bought him a Ralph Lauren purple knit shirt that was the that was the best one that I could afford, and then I started looking around the hospital, and I got it. All these children are gorgeously arrayed in the finest clothes, in the finest lace, in the finest knits, in the finest woolens that you could, that anybody could possibly buy. And they'll never, ever go outside because these nuns see that these children have that value in the kingdom of God. I hope that one day when I cross the river and meet Jesus and I'm in heaven uh, with him, that I will meet a little boy who can talk to me and, and can tell me that he heard my stories and maybe I made him laugh and my prayers that he'll be wearing that purple knit shirt. I can only hope. But here's the deal. On paper, does it make sense to spend all that money on a child that'll never go outside? On paper, no. But in the kingdom of God, it's a beautiful thing. It's a glimpse of a new reality, a way of being different in the way the Bible asks us to be different. So we've gotten two details so far, right? There's a cloak and then there's a city, uh, Jericho, but there's also... There's also a language. 
travel with me to Jerusalem and I will show you some steps in a neighborhood. It's on a round hill southwest of the Temple Mount, sort of overlooking the old city of Jerusalem. People just don't notice these steps. They walk all around. There's some churches in this neighborhood, and there's some things to take pictures of and to see, but nobody seems to pay attention to the steps. And what's remarkable about the steps is these steps are the the same steps that Jesus would have been dragged up when they arrested him on the night before he died. I mean, these steps stand as a witness. His sandaled feet walked up these steps, and these steps have a memory. And the reason why I tell you about these steps is because I want you to pay attention whenever Mark's gospel uses the original language or refers to the original language of Jesus and the disciples. Um, Aramaic is the language of Jesus and his disciples. And the night that Jesus is arrested and dragged up these steps, bystanders recognize Peter as a Galilean by his accent. Now, we'll never know for sure, but Galilean Aramaic was probably distinct from Jerusalem uh, Aramaic, and and Galileans being a little slower and a little more rustic, I'm sure that that was something that would cause them to the, the city people to snicker, if you will. I have my own story. Uh, back when I was a brand new priest, I was a layperson in Montgomery, and then I got to be a minister in Montgomery. I, I served with this wonderful minister who is now gone to heaven, but his name was Jim Walter, and we called him Cracker because he had this thick, 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 thick South Alabama accent, and we just mangle the liturgy. And there's a, there's not one monolithic Southern accent. We all sound different from different parts of the of the South, but in the Deep South, and especially the Southern part of, of the state of Alabama in the Deep South, there's an accent that's disappearing uh, as the old folks are old folks are leaving us. And and Jim had this one. This is where he would say things like bud instead of bird, bud and wood, and the the wood, the lawed and wada, and th- this kind of stuff. And so Jim was so said such a thick magnolia mouth that we just laughed and, and snickered every time he said something. And one Sunday, it was a Palm Sunday, we had our passion play. So everybody had a part, and we were recreating the night before Jesus died, and there was a narrator, and then and Jim Walter was Peter, uh, warming his hands by the charcoal fire while Jesus is on trial, and the narrator said something to the effect of, um, the serving girl could tell that he was a, a Galilean by his accent. And then Jim Walter said, I don't know the man, which it was a total pandemonium in the church because it was just so funny uh, with that accent. So pay attention to Aramaic uh, when when you read the Gospel of Mark. Aramaic would be the language that they spoke. It, it sort of worked this way. There were three languages in the world of Jesus. You would have Aramaic, uh, f- in which people within the Jewish family would speak to each other, and then you had Hebrew, which would be the language of Scripture. Uh, that would be the that would be the 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 language of religion, if you will. And then you had Koine, which was a common Greek, so you could do business in the marketplace and speak to your Greek-speaking Gentile neighbors, sort of like Spanglish, uh, probably today, something to get you around a global language, if you will. So pay attention when Mark's gospel refers to Aramaic, and in verse forty-six, he calls Bartimaeus Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, which is redundant because Bar Timaeus is Aramaic for son of Timaeus. So in reality, what Mark is saying is it's son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus. It's in Aramaic. Now, let's think back of some stories that we've covered in prior podcasts that have to do with the Aramaic language. Mark chapter 5, Jesus tells a little girl who has died, Talitha Kum, get up. Or Mark chapter 7, a, a deaf person is, is restored. Jesus says, Apatha, be opened. Or Mark chapter 15, which is a story that we'll talk about, when Jesus dies on the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Aramaic reminds us that God 
works in the everyday. I read somewhere long ago that the King James Version of the Bible, the one that started it all for so many of us Protestant Christians, the great magisterial uh, English translation of the Bible that many people still read, uh, was written in a language that 17th century Londoners didn't even use at the time. Rather, it was written in the language of the court. It was written in a language to inspire. It was supposed to be the language of God. Well, Aramaic is the total opposite. Aramaic is earthly and homey and real. While I'm telling Montgomery stories, I'll tell you this one. I was a minister of that church with with Cracker at St. John's in, in Montgomery, and I had, to, I had to cover the office on Fridays, which is the low man on the totem pole kind of day, because it's quiet, and all you've got to do is just lock the church and answer the phone. And they also wanted me to run off any vagrants that have to be sitting on the steps. So anyway, one Friday, the receptionist was terrified because a man was sitting on the front steps of the church, apparently covered in bright blue paint. And they sent me out there all by myself to run this guy off. Well, I walked out there, and it wasn't blue paint. It was blue cake icing, and he was gnawing on this huge piece of sheet cake uh, sitting in his lap. And I asked him what was going on, fella. He said, oh, my gosh, this is wonderful. Uh, I have a sweet tooth, and I never get to eat cake, and I found this in a dumpster. Would you like to have a piece? Well, I politely declined that offer, but then he continued. Oh, and he just chewed and chewed and ice and all in his beard and on his hair and his eyebrows. And he said, he said, I was just, I'm so happy to have this gift from God that I wanted to eat it and enjoy it on the steps of God's house. It is a blessing to find a sheet cake on a beautiful day like today. I realized that this man was worshiping the Lord. There was church going on on the front steps of St. John's, all covered in blue icing. He was blessed, and it was earthy, and it was homey, and it was real, and it was holy. Well, one final thought as we as we go into this. Um, we're going to be, be able to look at some new archaeology when we go into Jerusalem. I'll tell you about some new things that they have found over the last couple of years. And one of the things that has been found during this COVID disruption, and what's happened is because the borders have been closed, archaeologists have had a lot of undistracted time to work. There, have been, there haven't been pilgrims to guide, and there hadn't really been any other business but to dig. One of the things that they are about to complete, the uncovering and the discovery of, is a, is a pilgrim road that runs from the Pool of Siloam up to the southern steps of the Temple Mount under a current neighborhood. It's a fascinating project. But what's cool about it is they found coins, and coins are a great way to date uh, anything archaeologically. They found coins that date anywhere from the year 31 to 40, which put this road right in the time of Jesus. They believe that it was built by Pontius Pilate to diffuse the tensions that you always have when a million people show up into town. Remember a few podcasts back, we talk about Jesus walking up the Jerusalem road and the disciples are amazed, but the pilgrims are frightened because he's a rock star rabbi now. They know he's got a target on his back and trouble can happen in Jerusalem. And so this road that has has been discovered, and I hope to to take pilgrims on soon, is a road that Jesus no doubt uh, walked as he joined these throngs of people uh, in this in this in this crush, if you will, of called the festival weeks of Jerusalem. And so it's here in this tension of, of Jericho. I mean, the tension's there right now. It's palpable as they head up the Jericho Road. Uh, Jesus asked the blind man the same question that he asked of James and John. Now, remember, these stories lose punch when you put them into little snapshots. But if you just go back just a few verses, the question in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 51 is this, what do you want me to do for you? What he says to James and John after he tells them he's going to die, what do you want me to do for you? 
It's the same question for all disciples. Jesus wants us to be honest with our inmost selves. Sometimes we can carry around our own martyrdom or the things that we think we need to elicit perhaps the pity of others that we become dependent on. Uh, Perhaps we, we think we need markers for our identity. Jesus wants us to be honest about who we are and what we want. And in the case of Bartimaeus, he said, Master, let me see again. He wants to be free so that he can follow the Lord. You know, an analogy I use around here for religion has, has to do with an ice cream man who used to come back behind the church and Thursday afternoons he'd sell the children ice cream. I haven't seen him since COVID. I don't know if he went out of business or just quit. Uh, but he was a nice fella. And he, if I wore a clerical collar, he'd give me a free bomb pop. And, and he made a lot of money selling the children ice cream. But we really didn't have a relationship with the guy. I mean, he's a nice fella, but, but he was there to sell ice cream and we were there to buy ice cream. And I wonder sometimes if we don't treat our religion the same way. We treat God like a vending machine or a wishing well, uh, something to dial up when we when we need a blessing or we need a prayer answered. When what God wants from us is, is, some, is a love affair, is something real and something honest and something clear and clean. And, and Jesus knows this. When, when blind Bartimaeus calls Jesus son of David, this makes him a courtier to the king. And it's a new kingdom. It's a way of being different in the way the Bible asks us to be different. Bartimaeus is in the game, and he's following his King Jesus. And we can do the same. So friends, this closes one chapter, and now we're about to open another, which is the salvation of our world. See you next time.